past year, the people of this city had seen many faces of the 44 caliber killer in a series of police composite sketches. Not one of his victims saw the son of Sam smile. But as David Berkowitz was led into police headquarters early this morning, he broke into a macabre grin. For everyone else in police headquarters, there was good reason for good cheer. The police were convinced they had finally bagged the son of Sam. <laughs> Yes, my mama eat you like Jeff Dahmer. Say she on a period, let's make a mess, mama. I desensitize myself to it. I, 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 uh... I don't know, I went to great lengths. Never did I. Knew it would be this easy. Had a month that shit greasy. Yeah, be the nigga shit cheesy. People said I get my corner when I turn around. Oh, it's just measy. Everybody wanna get away from me because I got heebie-jeebies messed up like Michael. That game on the Halloween. What would you do with these sexual parts? I wouldn't enjoy it or anything. How long ago did this start, son? Let that stay right before you. But naked in your neighbor's pool, I stay stunned while I'm face fucking at the capitated skull. You ever seen that before? No. Freak nasty gore, I need asking laws. So you was a freak show. Ron, what are you doing? Try anything and you cancel, bro. I'm fixated on asphyxiating and breaking this little chick's neck like a pixie stick. The sick Satan worshiping bitches get horse whippings. I'm in the back, through the back door, slipping through the crack, leaving the corpse, dripping the mortician of love. Sent from above, forced and treat her more. When she the more stingy, I become. Been doing this for more than a quarter century. I'm just numbing my dreaming. Is it real? Someone pinch me on the buns. Do you feel blame? Are you mad? Uh, do you feel like wolves and kebabs right frantic? Get frantic, boots, 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 Welcome back to the Rainy Day Horror Show. I'm Big Daddy B, and you're listening to the number one podcast on the internet. And on today's Serial Killer Sunday episode, we have David Berkowitz joining us here today. He is known as the son of Sam Killer or the 40 Four caliber killer. It's a good episode. There's a little conspiracy behind his killings that Dusty covers later on in this episode. This is one you are not going to want to miss. It is just, it's crazy. It is bizarre what this man did and what he claimed drove him to kill these people. So, without further ado, welcoming to the show, Dusty McBalls, aka the Certified Cougar Hunter, and your host with the most. Now sit back, and shut up. Enjoy this show.
Thank you, Big D, for that beautiful little intro. Thank you for tuning in to Serial Killer Sunday, you guys. I almost started there for a second, but we're all good. Today's going to be a great episode. It's going to be just probably one of my favorite episodes of Serial Killer Sunday that we have done in a while. It's going to be good. It's going to be interesting. David Berkowitz is up to bat today, hailing from New York City. New York City, New York. So this is going to be a good one. Um, Trying to think of what else. Anything else interesting? Not really. So... Before we get in, oh yeah, before we get into it, um, if you have noticed in some of my other Serial Killer Sunday episodes on why some have interviews of the killer and why some others don't, it is strictly because that Serial Killer did not do an interview. So, not all of them like to do interviews, I guess, and David Berkowitz is one of them. I'm going to be sprinkling in throughout this episode... An interview that he did with Larry King in 1999. Now, I know, I assume that, you know, there's some Christian people that listen to this channel. And I know I give you guys a lot of shit, but it is all just jokes, okay? And for the people that are like me that aren't really big into religion and kind of get annoyed with, you know, the Jesus talk... This is one of those episodes where he claims to be a turnaround Christian and in this interview that I'm going to be sprinkling throughout this episode, he just consistently talks about God. So it kind of is annoying in a way, but it's still kind of interesting and it's still a good interview personally, I think, but you know, sometimes that Jesus talk does get annoying and we all know that. So, kick your Crocs on, or not kick them on, put your Crocs on, we're going on an adventure, okay, it's going to be a wild one, this is going to be a crazy story, it's going to be a lot of fun, and yeah, just sit back, relax, and get something to drink, get something to eat, because it's going to be a lengthy little episode, well, not really little if it's lengthy, but it's going to be a lengthy episode. So, without further ado, we're going to get into this episode on... David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the Son of Sam Killer. Yeah, the Son of Sam Killer or Killers, depending on, you know, this conspiracy theory that we might talk about at the end that involves David Berkowitz and the Son of Sam. He's also known as the 44 caliber pistol, the 44 caliber killer because he killed with a 44 Magnum. Which, some of these people survived from that, I don't know, I don't know how, I really don't know how, and we'll cover that later on in this episode. So without further ado, let's get into this beautiful episode on David Berkowitz. David Richard Berkowitz was born on June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. Shortly after David was born, he was promptly put up for adoption by both his biological parents, Betty Falco and Joseph Kleinman, who at the time were both married to two separate people. They both had their own relationship going on, and they decided to get down and dirty. And Betty ended up getting pregnant with David 
and he eventually was conceived. Obviously, otherwise he wouldn't be here. And the reason that they decided to put him up for adoption was because Joseph threatened Betty, telling her that if she doesn't put up David for adoption, he will abandon her. And shortly after David was put up for adoption, they ended up splitting up anyways. So, it was kind of pointless. But, after David was given to the local adoption agency, and within just a few days of being there, David would eventually get adopted by Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz. Now, throughout this entire episode, while I was reaching researching it and shit every time I came across the name Pearl it instantly reminded me of the horror movie Pearl and X so if you don't know what those movies are it's basically just an old lady goes around and kills well X is about an old lady killing a group of porno people so it's interesting it's actually my really X is my favorite horror movie of all time just because it's just a bunch of porn stars getting slayed by an old married couple. And actually, spoiler spoiler alert, we're going to be covering that on our horror movie breakdown and where the, like, the, the inspiration came from behind this story. So that, epi- or that movie. So that episode will be out tomorrow. And is hands down one of my favorite fucking horror movies. But the Berkowitzes were a Jewish working middle-class couple and through some interviews according to David they were more a little bit on the poorer side of the middle class now the Berkowitz they owned a hardware store with no kids David was an only child that was adopted by them only guy that grew up didn't have any brothers or sisters Now, as a young child, David had shown people his serial killer tendencies. He would bully his classmates, start fires within the alleys of New York City, and he would actually claim that he has started over 1,000 of these alley fireways, or these alley fires, not fireways, but these alley fires. He would kill animals destroy property, and would steal from local businesses within his area. David was a smart kid with an above-average IQ, but he absolutely hated school. David had told an interviewer during an interview that every day when that final bell would ring, I would sprint home. And allegedly, from what I could read, I didn't put this in my notes, but there was some signs of obviously mental illness, but more all along the lines of ADHD. So, David, I feel you there. We're back with David Burke was touching some other bases. You were adopted, right? Yes. Yeah. Is your father still living? My adoptive father? Yeah. Yes, he is. Does he contact you? Yes, we're in regular contact. He's a great dad. <laughs> Was he a great dad when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. I had great parents. What went wrong there, do you think? Uh, well, no, with my parents, nothing at all. They were the best. My mom, you know, she had passed away in 1967, my mother Pearl. And my dad was, thank God, is still alive today. 
Uh, they were the best parents a kid can have. I was an only child, and they, as on the, they were a little on the poor side. You know, my dad had to work six days a week, and um, they did a great job. You know, trying so you're to not into my, the problem. Parents. No, the the problem was with me. Uh, I was just a. I had a lot of pro emotional problems, which I know that broke their heart. I saw my parents, you know, break down and cry many times because they saw I had gone going through so many struggles, the depressions, and. Uh, not talking to them. When I was growing up, I was so uh, disruptive in, in school and had so many emotional problems, behavioral problems, that the school officials told my parents, you know, you're going to have to, to keep David in school, you're going to have to take him to a child psychologist. They made some kind of arrangements for me to go, and I went for about two years once a week to Manhattan with my mom. She would take me there to, to just try to just try to deal with me, deal with the situations, I had very bad bouts of depression when I was a child. I was very suicidal. Uh, but you were getting help too, right? Well, or not. they tried to help me, but Larry, that didn't work. Okay, hated school. Fucking hated it. I remember skipping school so much in high school. Bro, I would... <laughs> me and one of my best friends, Jake. When I haven't really talked to him recently, but it's just, you know, you get older, you grow apart, okay? And I moved down to Atlanta for two years, so, like, I did... Didn't really talk to a whole lot of people back home. But he, me and Jake, we would skip school if we didn't have like a presentation done or anything like that or we didn't want to take the test. We would skip school and we'd go to my friend's house and we would just do these ramen noodle challenges where we'd go to the Burnsville Center Mall. And it's like at like, um, there was this old like DVD store within the Burnsville Center. I think it was called FYE or Phi. I think is how you pronounce it. And we would get the, we'd go to like the Asian section where they had like all of like the candy from Asia or like the little um, snacks from Asia. And we would get the really, really hot ramen packets. And we'd have a competition to see how much of these hot ramen packets that we could eat. And it fucking hurt. He won every time. That dude had a like an iron stomach. Okay. I don't know how he would. He would eat like two, three in a row. And I'm over here dying halfway through the first pack. Like I don't know how in the fuck this kid did it. But he would do it. And it was impressive. Okay. So Jake, if you're listening to this. My hat's off to you. I still can't do that shit. That's fucking impeccable. Impressive. I don't know. I just I, I just couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. Now, even though David was a deviant young teen, he never got into trouble or was ever caught for raising, you know, a little hell on these New York streets. The only time he'd ever... The only time he ever got into quote-unquote legal troubles was when he went on his serial killer binge. David had also learned at a young age that he was adopted at the age of five and that his biological mother had died while giving birth to him. Now, this is a lie, okay? I don't know why his adoptive parents had lied to him, but they did. I would assume maybe that it was to protect him so he wouldn't have like these feelings of being unwanted or like 
hated by his real parents like a burden, but it kind of backfired on his adoptive parents because after they told him their version of the truth, David still had these feelings of guilt and this time it was shifted in a new direction because he thought that he was responsible for his biological mother's death. He also had wondered why his father had abandoned him after his mother's death, which started to trigger some nasty thoughts. Where did I go? Oh, there we go. Okay. David started thinking that maybe his biological father hated him. And because of these nasty thoughts and this gross feeling of guilt, he eventually developed a fear and was afraid of the dark. He had told one reporter that, I became afraid of the dark and thought that my father would come out and get me for killing my mother. Now, as David started progressing through his youth, that feeling of being alone and unwanted never went away, especially when his adoptive mom, Pearl, died from breast cancer when he was 14. And after her death, David's relationship with his father and his new stepmother became extremely strained and eventually his adoptive father and his new wife would move to Florida. Now, in the interview that I watched, it said that they moved to Florida for for so his dad could retire. But from a bunch of the other sources that I read online, most of them said that the reason his parents moved down there was they were just be they just became really really tired of his shit and didn't really want anything to deal like didn't want to deal with him anymore so that's why they moved to florida but whichever way is the more accurate way it did end up leaving david alone and since he was alone he decided to try and find solace within the United States Army. So, at the young age of 18, David joined the United States Army in 1971 where he was sent off to South Korea instead of Vietnam. And according to David, it was disastrous three years and he hated being in the military. But... He did, you know, do his whole stint. He didn't do four years. He did do three, and he was honorably discharged. And from, from his time in the Army, the, really the only prolific thing that I could find that he did <laughs> was he, he caught an STD from a South Korean prostitute. That is so funny. I know some of you listening to this have been there, okay? Yeah. And for the people that don't know a whole lot about STDs, I did some research. I guess chlamydia is like f comes up 50% in males. So, people, if you 
If you haven't gotten checked in a while and you're a little scared, it's, it's burning down there when you're going to the bathroom. Hey, I'm not trying to drive fear into your little heart, but I'm just saying, you might want to go get checked out. Because you could be like Mr. David Berkowitz. Hmm? Little locust flying out of your pee hole. You might have the seat. You might have the clap. Right? Is that chlamydia? I forgot. But, <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. That's so funny. Once David got discharged from the military, he returned home and moved into a small apartment in Yonkers, New York, in 1974 at the age of 21. It was also around this time that David was very adamant about researching his heritage and wanted to know if his biological father was still alive. But what he ended up finding out shocked him to his core. David was able to find out through an extensive and an exhausting record search that his biological mother was still alive and that he had a long-lost sister. David then eventually mustered up the courage to contact his mother to see if she'd be willing to meet him, and she reluctantly said yes. Now, after... David had met his biological mother. He ended up finding out that his biological father had just recently died. Did you ever find out who your real parents were? Uh, yes, I did. Yes, did I that? did. I did meet my uh, natural mother, and I did find out that my natural father had passed away in uh, early 70s. Did, you, did your natural mother have any problems that might give you a clue to any of the gene problem that might have occurred here? No, nothing like that at all. Uh, I did have the chance to meet her. She was also uh, Jewish, just like my natural father. And uh, she turned out to be a very nice person. I met her when I was, uh, I think, around 22 so years the, old. The problem, David, was with you, Me. as in Shakespeare. Yeah. The problem is with ourselves, Me. right? Yeah. And the true story behind his illegitimate birth and this, you know, meeting and finding out that, you know, his parents were still alive except for his dad, really, really shook him. And it shook him so bad to the point that he ended up losing contact with his mother. And this is the point in our story that it starts to take a very, very dark turn in David's life. After he lost contact with his mother... David got a job as a full-time employee as a letter sorter in the U.S. Postal Service, where he would work during his serial killer rampage. Before this, he did work as a night security guard. I didn't, it didn't say or didn't specify what business he was working for, but he at one point was working as a security guard. Now, David's serial killer rampage first started on December 24th, 1975, where he claims that he stabbed two 18-year-old women from behind with the hunting knife. Now, both women did survive, but neither of them could identify who had stabbed them. 
So unfortunately, the case went cold until he moved out of that apartment and into a new two-family home in the south, or not south, in the same city of Yonkers. And a little bit to branch off of this, um, this incident, I read from some sources saying that he stabbed two people and both came forward. And then I read from other sources saying that he stabbed two women, but only one of them came forward and the other one was never identified. So I don't know a hundred percent on which is which I just, cause I know some people know this case pretty heavily and I just want to cover my basis that yes, it, I, I know I said he stabbed two people. I said he stabbed two people just because I wanted to cover both sides. So some sources say he stabbed one. She came forward and they never located the other one. And some say that he stabbed both women. So after he moved into this new home, this is where David would continue to carry out his murders. David would strike again in the early hours on July 19th in 1976 after he had just recently acquired a 44 caliber pistol from a trip to Texas. David's next two victims were 18-year-old Donna Laurie and 19-year-old Jody Valenti. Now on this day, Jody and Donna were sitting in Joni's car, Joni's I meant Jody's, sitting in Jody's car, just conversating, having a good old time, talking about, you know, normal teenage shit. And while they were talking, David crept up to Jody's car and unloaded three bullets into, you know, Donna and Jody. Now, this shooting killed Donna, but only injured Jody, thankfully. Well, not thankfully that one died, but thankfully it wasn't two people that died. After the police were called and Jody recovered from her wounds, Jody was questioned by the police. And she had stated that she didn't recognize the shooter, but she did give a decent description that did fit the statement that Lori's father gave. And Lori's father said that he saw a man sitting in a yellow 1970 Ford Galaxy that he assumed committed the shooting. And his statement was also backed up by other witnesses and neighbors within the neighborhood saying that they also saw a yellow 1970 Ford Galaxy driving around that night. And if you, you know, remember the Ford Galaxy... I think that is the same car that Ed Kemper drove when he was committing his murders. Pretty sure it was. I'm like 90% sure. So, you know, there's a reoccurring theme here going on, right? Christians, serial killers, 90% of the time, right? For Galaxy, this is two serial killers out of the six episodes that have had, you know, a Ford Galaxy. I mean, hey, what's going on here, people? Ford, are you are you funding the serial killers? Is that what's going on here? Huh? What? Why? It's weird. It's like if you really think about it, that's so weird that two 
I mean, maybe not, okay? I don't know how many of the Ford Galaxies were produced in the 70s, but I assume it was probably a lot. It's probably like a Ford Fusion nowadays or a Toyota Tacoma, okay? They're probably just mass-produced, but still, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. After this shooting, David would stay quiet for a few months before striking again on October 23rd, 1976, when he went to Flushing, which is a community in the borough of Queens. His next two victims were Carl DeNaro and Rosemary Keenan. Again, these two victims were sitting in their parked car, conversating, doing the same thing as the other two victims, when all of a sudden, both windows were shattered. Rosemary, being ultimately terrified, started up the car, threw that bitch out of park, and started to peel out of the area to go get help. Now, once both Rosemary and Carl got help, they both realized that they had been shot. Thankfully, both of them survived, which I'm kind of confused about, more so on how Carl survived because he was shot in the head. Now, I'm going to get a little, you know, I'm not going to try to mansplain this, but I feel like to understand this situation and how much of an anomaly it is, I'm going to mansplain it a little bit. So I apologize. But for people that don't know a whole lot about handguns or just guns in general, a 44 caliber pistol is on the bigger end of pistol calibers, okay? And if you go on YouTube right now, you can look up a bunch of people like shooting ballistic dummies with these 44 magnums. Now, a ballistic dummy is basically just a representation of a human body, a human torso. They make them with like, you can make them in like a hand format. You can make them in like a torso format or a head format or like a leg, a foot, however you want to do it. And people do these kinds of things to these torsos or these ballistics gels to like simulate what would happen to a real human body, similar to a real human body. So in these ballistic dummy gels, they try to make it close to what a human like the outside like the skin that's wrapped in that wraps the dummy they try to make that as close to human skin as possible they try to make the bones within the dummy as close to human bones and you can get some without like fake blood or you can get some with real fake blood or not real fake blood but you can get them with fake blood and you can Get different colors, like I know you can get them in red or green and stuff like that. But these videos, you have to watch it because it blows your fucking mind. To when you see these dummies shot in the head with the 44 Magnum, there, there's nothing there afterwards. It goes straight into a mist. Not really a mist, but it is completely destroyed. So what I would assume in this situation is that Carl maybe was grazed with the bullet because there's another guy later on, another victim later on in the story who actually got shot in the head and he lost his vision, which 
still fucking blows my mind on how he even survived. But it's just like, I would assume Carl was grazed with this bullet. That's going to be my assumption because that's the only thing that would make sense on how he would even survive. Now, when Carl and Rosemary were questioned by the police, they were unable to identify the shooter because they didn't see who shot them. The police did, however, determine that both of them were shot with a 44 caliber pistol. To be specific, it was a Bulldog revolver. But they couldn't determine what gun these bullets came from. Investigators also didn't connect this shooting to the first shooting because they both occurred in separate New York boroughs. Then, shortly after the shooting of Carl DeNaro and Rosemary Keenan, David would strike again shortly after midnight on November 27th, 1976, where 16-year-old Donna Demasi, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, I'm sorry, she's a victim and I might have just fucked it up, and I apologize, and 18-year-old Joanne Lamino, and they were sitting on Lamino's porch in Bella Rose, Queens. Now, these two teens, like I said, were just sitting there, talking, maybe drinking some lemonade, maybe they were drinking a Capri Sun, were those around in the 70s? I don't know. I wasn't born in the 70s. I was born in 2000. So, like, I'm serious. I don't... Were they? Someone will have to let me know. DM me on Instagram at the Rainy Day Horror Show. Just say, Capri Suns were made in the 70s. And I'll be like, okay, thank you. Now, as they were just sitting there and talking and doing, you know, just typical teenage stuff, this man approached both of them dressed in military attire. He then asked both teens for directions in a high-pitched voice before taking out a revolver and shooting both of them. After both teens were shot, the man ran off injuring Donna and severely injuring Joanne. Both girls had survived, but Joanne did become paralyzed from this altercation. Now, just like the past two shootings, the police were able to determine that the shots did come from an unknown 44 caliber revolver. But this shooting would change the course of the investigation because these two girls, along with witnesses within the area, were able to give a very detailed description to the police, allowing them to make a really, really good composite sketch of this alleged shooter. After this shooting, David would then strike again on January 30th, 1977. His next two victims were Christine Frowned, sorry, probably fucked that up, and John Deal, and these two victims were sitting in Deal's car in Queens when all of a sudden they were shot at. John had suffered only minor injuries from the shooting, but unfortunately, Christine had succumbed to her injuries and would later die at the hospital. And the exact same thing, 
like it was in the past three shootings. They're surviving victims or victim, and in this case, it was John, was unable to identify the shooter. But this shooting is where the police decided to publicly connect this case to the other previous shootings. The police had also realized that all the shooting, the shootings involved... Let me rewind. I fucked that up. The police also had realized that all of the shootings so far involved a 44 caliber pistol and that the shooter seemed to target younger women with long, dark hair. And in some instances, men with long, dark hair, too. The police then decided to realize, not realize, that the, I'm stuttering. The police then decided to release their composite sketch from the various attacks to the public. NYPD officials also hinted at the possibility that there may be more than one shooter. And remember this part because it will come up later in the story when I'm just barely glossing over the, uh, the conspiracy with the Son of Sam killings. After the shooting of Christine Frond and Frond front i'm sorry again i apologize and john deal david would then strike again on march 8th 1977 where a student from columbia university named virginia i'm so gonna fuck this up i think it's a russian last name so this is gonna be so embarrassing it's gonna be so funny but vos oh god voskarikian voskarikian Voskarikian, we'll just call her Virginia V, okay? And she was shot walking home from class, and this is weird. This is something's kind of weird about this this shooting too, because she also was she she lived a block away from where Christina was shot and killed. So the shooters in the same. Same area, right? And it's just weird that he killed two people within a block of of each other, I guess is what you would say. Now, Virginia was shot several times and ultimately died after she was shot in the head. A couple minutes after the shooting took place, a neighbor ran outside and stated to the police that they saw a short, husky teenage boy sprinting away from the scene and other neighbors within the area also reported that they saw a teenager as well as a man matching David's description in the area of the shooting. After the police interviewed all the witnesses, they went public about the shooting that was committed and the media accidentally implied that the teenager was the perpetrator. He was the one that caused this shooting. But thankfully, the police officials were able to correct the media's mistake and determine that the teenager was a witness to the shooting and not the suspect. After this shooting, 
David would then strike again on April 17, 1977. David's next two victims were Alexander Rousseau and Valentini Serini. Is that how you say it? Valentini Saranrap? Sarayani? Sarayani? Serini. We're just going to roll with Serini. David had attacked these two people in the exact same fashion as the other victims. David had walked up to their parked car in the Bronx, shot them, killed them, and then walked away. Once the police were called, they took statements from the witnesses and suspected that this was the exact same suspect that had committed all of the previous murders slash shootings. But there was something different about this shooting too. At the crime scene, police investigators discovered a handwritten letter that was addressed to the captain of the NYPD. In this letter, David referred to himself as the son of Sam. Now, up until this point, the media had dubbed him as the 44 caliber shooter. Okay, or the 44 caliber killer, I think is what it was. The 44, yeah, I think that's what it was. And this was the first time that he came publicly about his, you know, the name that he has given himself. And in this note, he also expressed his desire to continue his shooting spree. And because of this note and the growing amount of shootings that have been committed, the NYPD launched their largest manhunt in their state's history. I read from somewhere, don't quote me because I couldn't refind it, but I know I, I know I read it somewhere. I think they launched like a 300 person manhunt to look for um, David. I will also put in right now after I say this, um, there was this mobster, Michael Franzine, who interviewed David Berkowitz and he came out with the book. He's an ex-mob guy. He was part of, I forgot what family he was part of, but at one point, the NYPD, the, the New York government, actually got his family involved in trying to catch David. And at one point, they almost, Michael Franzine and his family, they actually almost did catch him. But I'll, I'll, put, that, I'll put that clip in right now and let you guys listen to it because it is... It's crazy because this isn't the only time that the government has tried to use the mob to get people. They also tried to get, this is a little bit of a conspiracy, but the government also tried to get the mafia to go and kill Fidel Castro. Now, I don't know if that is true. It's just some stuff that I've heard around within, you know, doing mob related research and stuff like that. Now, I could be wrong, but... It's 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 crazy on how like what the government has tried getting the mob into and not even like even if you want to go even deeper the whole conspiracy that the mob killed JFK. But I'm going to put that little clip in here for you guys to listen to. So enjoy it was eye opening for me because, you know, when I was on the street, the NYPD actually came to us and asked us for help to try to find him. And there was one night in Queens where we thought we had him. Some guys in my crew had said, we think we got him. And we actually close, we just missed him. And unfortunately, a few days later, there was another murder. Now, 
after they launched their large manhunts, the first thing that the NYPD did to try and find their killer was to create a psychological profile for the suspect. The psychological profile described the killer as neurotic, potentially suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, and believed that he was possessed by demons. I don't know how the police assumed that he was possessed by demons, especially in this case, but I don't want to spoil it. Okay, yeah, it's this is a satanic murdering thing, so we'll cover that more, but they somehow came to the conclusion that he was possessed by demons. Police also tried tracking down every legal owner of a 44 caliber revolver within New York City to question them, and they also forensically tested all of these guns, these owners, well, the guns that these gun owners had to see if they could find the gun that they believed was involved within these shootings. But unfortunately, they were unable to determine which gun was their murder weapon. Now, here's another thing. I'm going to, I don't know, I think it's really, really interesting, so I'm going to share it. It's going to be a little bit of me mansplaining, so I apologize. But when they do like these, because I took forensics senior year in high school, and if I were to, like, go into, like, I always wanted to go into, like, the criminal justice field, but I just, school isn't my thing. So, I just, I just couldn't. ADHD? No. No. Hates school. But I wanted to go and be, a, like, a ballistics person for, like, a forensics team. And it's really, really interesting on what they do to find out, like, these bullets. And, like, they can, like, let's say I walk up, like, in this case, like, I walk up behind somebody in a car and I shoot them bullet goes through their head and exits into like the seat or the dashboard or whatever they can take that bullet and they can see the rifling on the bullet from the barrel when the bullet was shot out of the gun they can determine what gun it was just by the rifling because every rifling on every gun is slightly different. They're never the same. And it's the same way with a firing pin. Like, let's say I have just a normal pistol, not a revolver, because it'll make this situation easier. Let's just say I have, like, a Glock 19. Pull the trigger, bullet flies out of the barrel, and the spent shell casing ejects out of the gun, and it lands on the ground. Now, if I didn't pick that shell up in this murder or this crime that I committed... The police can take that bullet. They can see where the firing pin hit on the shell casing to eject the bullet out of the barrel. And that's another way that they can figure out what gun did it. But then again, um, assuming in this time, not all weapons were, that were in the United States were legal. So they don't have all documentation on this. And I'm pretty sure that's why maybe if they went just went to any 44 Magnum like owner it would have been different but unfortunately they weren't able to find the murder weapon and after that didn't work the NY NYPD finally set up traps where undercover cops were posing as couples 
and parked cars in hopes that the suspect would reveal himself. And unfortunately, that didn't work either, but little did the cops know that their suspect was about to make himself known very, very shortly. On May 30th, 1977, Jimmy Breslin, a columnist for the Daily News, received a second Son of Sam letter. Now, this letter was postmarked, postmarked for that same day from Englewood, New Jersey. And on the envelope, it said, Blood and Family, Darkness and Death, Absolute Depravity, and 44, like .44. But on the letter itself, the Son of Sam stated that he was a reader of Jimmy's column and referenced his past victims. He also mocked the NYPD over its inability to solve the case. This letter also said, What will you have for July 29th? Which scared the living shit out of the investigators that were covering the Son of Sam case. Because on July 29th, 1977, that would be the one-year anniversary of David's first shooting. But one thing that the investigators noticed that was really, really odd about this letter compared to the previous one, specifically the one that they just got, it was more... It was written in a more sophisticated way compared to the last one that they found at the crime scene. So they started to believe that maybe there is a copycat involved within this case or it was more than one person. Now after the police recovered this letter, they waited an entire week before they came out publicly with said letter. And after the police released it to the media, it sent New York City into a panic, causing many women and men to change their hairstyle since David, since David's track record was mainly men and women with dark long hair. But that quick little disguise didn't really save anyone from David's reign of terror as he would then attack again on June 26th in 1977, where David made an appearance in Bayside, Queens, as he shot Sal Lupo and Judy Placido while they were sitting in their car. This shooting was also conducted in the same way David had shot the others. Walked up to them, shot three bullets into the car, injured Sal and Judy, and then walked away. Both Judy and Sal survived the shooting with minor injuries, but like usual, they never saw the man that had attacked them. However, as the police arrived on scene, they started questioning witnesses within the area, and the witnesses told the police that they had seen a tall, stocky man with dark hair fleeing the crime scene 
as well as a blonde man with a mustache driving around the area. After this incident, police believed that the man with the dark hair was their suspect and that the man with blonde hair was just a witness. And now after this shooting, we come to the final incident and the final incident that ended David's reign of terror. On July 31st, 1977, just two days after the anniversary of the shooting, David Berkowitz struck again, but this time he struck in Brooklyn. Now these next two victims and his final two victims were Stacy Moskowitz and Robert Volante. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I certainly don't, I don't forgive him. I don't have a whole lot of hate and anger, um, possibly because I'm still alive. You know, that, that certainly has a lot to do with it. Um, what he's doing now, um, you know, he's, he's, in, he's a born-again Christian, which I think is just great. Although, when you're in prison for the rest of your life, I don't think there's a whole lot more to do. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm kind of ambivalent, to, to be honest with you. I wrote David Berkowitz a letter. Yes, I did. And it was a letter from my heart. My daughter had just turned 20. I only had her 20 years. I wanted him to know what she was about from the time she was born, as she was growing up, in her tender years, and as a preteen, and things like that. Uh, he took away her life. I am left with absolutely nothing. He left me nothing. He left me with memories. Thank God I have that. But he left me nothing. I lost the whole family with broken hearts. He is a bastard. I, I could kill him with my bare hands, and I am not a violent person. I could probably kill him and go for a dinner and go to sleep that night very peacefully. We're back with David Berkowitz. Have you ever had a deal with relatives of the victims directly? Have you ever heard from them or spoken to them or had uh, any contact at all? I uh, did receive, in 1993, I did receive a, a, le a long letter from a mother of uh, Stacy Moskowitz, and she wrote me a beautiful letter. Uh, she had seen a program on uh, Inside Edition, which aired back then, and uh, it really touched my heart. For many years, I had been praying for her, as well as for all the people that were hurt by this tragedy. And uh, I did write to her a long letter, uh, I think last year. And uh, she received that well. But uh, there's a lot of pain and hurt in their lives. And I wish I could sit down and talk with some of them. I, what I, would you say? Uh, I'm sorry. And uh, I know that wouldn't be enough. And just like all of the other shootings, these two were sitting and hanging out in Robert's car that was parked near a park. David then walked up to the passenger side of the car and began shooting into said car. 
Robert had suffered non-life-threatening injuries, but he did end up losing all of his vision in one eye and partially was blinded in the other. Still amazed that he did not get his blown or his brain split in two. Like, that is fucking amazing to me. I've never really heard about anybody surviving. Like, getting shot in the fucking head with the 44 mag, that would literally blow your fucking brains out. Unless, hold on, let me do some research real quick. I think a 44 caliber pistol is the same thing as a 44 magnum, but I just want to do research. Because I don't know. Oh yeah, 44 caliber is famously called the most powerful hand gr- handgun cartridge in the world. So, yeah. And it was made famous by Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry. The 44 magnum has since been eclipsed in power by the four by the .454 Casal and the 460 Smith and Wesson Magnum. So. Yeah, it's a powerful handgun cartridge, and which is what I thought. And it, yeah, I don't know how we survived. I really, really don't know how we survived. I wish I could say the same for Stacy, but she ended up dying from her injuries shortly after she had arrived at the hospital. But thankfully, just a few days after the Volante shooting, David was arrested on August 10th 1977, after a witness came forward saying that he saw a man fleeing the Volante scene in a car that had a parking ticket on it. After the police heard this news, that had a ma- they had a major breakthrough as they realized only a handful of parking tickets were given out, and one of them was for David. So... What did the police do? Wait, hold on. Let me let me let me backtrack a little bit. After the police heard this new breakthrough, they ended up tracking down David and found the car that he was driving, the car that was ticketed with this parking ticket, and it was his yellow Ford Galaxy. And as they saw the car, they ended up doing an illegal search of it. And what they found further incriminated David. In his car, they found a rifle, a duffel bag filled with ammo, maps of the crime scenes, and an unsent letter. And sorry, and an unsent Son of Sam letter that was addressed to Sergeant Dowd of the Omega Task Force. After they searched his vehicle, they then decided to wait for David to leave his home, hoping to grab him as soon as their warrant went through. But that warrant didn't come through in time, and as David came out of his apartment, the police just decided to surround him and arrest him while he was holding that 44 caliber pistol in a paper bag. Once he was arrested, he then told the police, Well, you got me. How come it took such a long time? 
And with that comment, the police then decided to search his home and what they found was fucking terrifying. Inside David's house, the police found satanic graffiti drawn on the walls and diaries detailing his alleged 1,400 plus arsons throughout New York. Then, after the NYPD searched his residence, they took David down to the precinct to interview him and when they brought him in for questioning, he confessed to all of the murders and stated that he was going to plead guilty to his crimes. We're back at the um, Sullivan Correctional Facility in Fallsburg, New York. I'm Larry King with David Berkowitz. You uh, confessed to these crimes, right? So there was never a trial? Uh, right. I just wanted to end it, and uh, I was just so distraught. I just confessed and, and pled guilty and got it over with and, and right. just wanted to get out of that environment. When the police asked him why he committed these horrific acts of violence, this is really fucking funny. I love this part. It is so, so fucking funny. He told the police that his neighbor, Sam Carr, was a powerful demon and that Sam's black Labrador retriever named Harvey was possessed by a different demon. And that black lab told him to go out and kill young, pretty individuals. Regrettably, I mean, I look back at it with just regret. I just, at this time, I had made a pact with the devil, I had allowed this satanic thing to control me, and I felt these paranormal powers. I know that sounds uh, so hard to understand, you know, but Explain that, that, that's, what was, that's what was happening, and I felt somehow invincible, I felt that I had this power, and I was unknown to me. I was slowly being led down a path of, of, of destruction. Did it give you a high, in other words, what was the plus for you? There has to be a plus. What did you get out of it? Nothing. Nothing. So you were not happy when you were doing this? No, no. I, I just felt like a brainwashed robot. I really? Felt, yeah. What is that like? I just like felt I had no mind. I felt something else was controlling, controlling me. Uh, and you, you took it through a dog? No, no. That was what just... What was that? A, that was just... Uh, I'd rather not talk about that. That was just a bunch No, I'm not going to pressure you, but there were pressures on you. Yeah, sure, there were pressures. You were pressures. hearing from sources outside of yourself. Not in that psychological way, but uh, it was, it was a, a satanic thing. Right. Was, Why do you think it took you to take a life of someone? Why do you think that it took... I mean, there are a lot of people in cults and a lot of people who do weird things. Why, why did you do what you did, do you think? At the time, I was uh, misled. I thought that what I was what I was supposed to do. It was you the stupidest. You were doing was it, right? was, it was not right, but that somehow this had some kind of plan. Compulsion. Uh, no, it wasn't that. It was just more complicated than that. David gave himself the nickname "the Son of Sam" because he believed that the people he killed were pleasing his demonic neighbor, Sam Carr. Now, because of this statement, 
being so outrageous, David underwent numerous psychiatric evals to see if he was you know, truly crazy and mentally ill or if he was just making something up so he could try and get an easier prison sentence. And at the end of all of these psych evals, he was declared competent to stand trial, which means, for people that don't know, they didn't believe his whole demonic story. So they let him stand trial as a normal person, and at the age of 24, he was convicted for all six murders and was sentenced to 25 years to life for every murder. David now resides in Sawangunk Correctional Facility in New York, where he is actually up for parole in May of this year, May 2024. So it would be really interesting to see if he gets out or if what, what's, what's going to happen. I'm really, really interested in to see what's going to happen. Now, as the years have passed from when he was convicted, David ended up retracting his demonic dog story, saying that it was all a hoax, and he turned his life around by claiming he's a Christian, which you probably heard a shit ton of times throughout this episode. He at one point claims that he fell into a really bad depression and was thinking about killing himself but decided not to do it because God came down and forgave him one night. He is now known as Brother David or the Son of Hope within his prison walls. But our story doesn't stop there because this is where I'm going to talk about that huge conspiracy behind his murders. And a lot of people think that he wasn't the only killer. Now, the conspiracy behind these killings is that David was a part of a satanic cult. Life. Did you always act alone? Well, not, not, not fully like that. Were other people caught? No. They're still out there? Uh, most have passed on. And, uh, but they were involved in killing as well? They, they got were. away with it? Well, no, they haven't got away with it, and they won't. I, I, you think they're in hell? Uh... Some have lost their lives, and... You're going to go to heaven? I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I don't deserve it, but that's God's mercy, because that's the promise. You know, I know that the blood of Jesus has washed away. What kind of prayer do you want to do first? And that they would all meet at Untermeyer Park in Yonkers, where David came into contact with witches, you know, animal sacrifices, and other nasty shit that comes with being in a satanic cult. David at one point overheard that people within his cult were going to start murdering, you know, humans as sacrifices to please the devil and bring out the chaos in this world. And that's why he had that remember when he had the 1400 plus fires written down in his car, they would start fires along, you know, fucking New York City streets and stuff like that. Now, I was going to import that whole interview that he did where, because he said that in an interview with somebody with, I think it was Terry Terry Maurer, Meyer, something like that. I was going to import it, but it was, it was really, really long. It was like an hour long and I didn't want to, 
I didn't want to put it all in this episode and make this like extremely long. So maybe in the future we will do a part two to this episode where we can fully invest into that satanic cult that he allegedly was a part of because he came out and said in that interview that he only committed some of the murders. He was at all of them, whether he was a lookout, um, a driver or whatever, but he said that he claims that he did not commit all of the shootings. But we'll cover that in a different episode. It'd be really, really interesting, I think. So I might I might do that in a few weeks here. Who knows? But yeah, that's going to be it for this episode. I wonder, I'm going to be interested to see if he actually gets out this, um, this May. Now, he doesn't believe he's going to get out. He doesn't want to get out. He actually at one point stopped going to his parole hearing. I just hit the microphone. Sorry. He stopped going to his parole hearing because he's, you know, he came to terms that he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life because he's been denied parole ever since he was in prison. So it'll just be interesting to see. Um, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to get out or not. It'd be crazy if he did. It'd be really, really crazy if he did. I wonder, I wonder what the, the media would have a field day with that shit. But let's see what we got going for next Sunday. I want to see who's up next for our Serial Killer Sunday. Give me two seconds here. Oh, what the fuck? I don't want to go there. Let me see. All right. Already here. Let it. What was it? New York? Oh, Wisconsin. You're up next. Sweet. My brotherly state. The cheese state. I hope you guys know if I have any Wisconsin listeners, which I do, I'm going to give you guys so much shit. For people that don't really know the Midwest, Minnesota beefs with Wisconsin. Wisconsin beefs with Illinois, specifically Chicago. It's like a little trio. But. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say. It's going to be interesting. I'm excited to see. I don't know if I'm if I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm going to do Jeffrey Dahmer or Ed Gein. I'm probably I want to look for something a little bit more unheard of serial killer wise from Wisconsin. Okay? But oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you guys. The reason I wanted to do Son of Sam strictly because of this one song lyric that I'm now going to play from Lil Wayne's six foot, seven foot song that was said by um, Corey Guns in it. So roll that clip. Jumped in a wishing well. Now wish me well. Tell him kiss my ass. Call that kiss and tell. Yeah, word to my mama. I'm out of my llama bean. Don't want to see what that drama mean. Get some drama mean. Llama scream. Hotter than summer sun on a Ghana queen. Now all I want is hits. Bitch, Wayne signed a fiend. I, I play the side for you niggas just trying to front and see. Son of Gun, son of Sam. You niggas the son of me. See, that's the only reason why I want to do Son of Sam. Literally, when I was flicking through um, serial killers in New York, I came across Son of Sam and that lyric popped in my head instantly. It's like, okay, now I got to do it because I want to know who this serial killer is than who this um, lyric is truly about. Also, no disrespect, New York, but your serial killers are all the same. Like pretty much really, they're like really, really similar. This was the only one that was like outrageous that I could find. There was a serial killer couple, but I didn't want to do them. 
I didn't want to do them. But most of the people that were, um, that I looked at, they didn't really like have anything spectacular. It was like either prostitutes, mainly a lot of them were prostitutes. Um, then there was a serial killer couple and then there was David Berkowitz. And I was like, let's do David Berkowitz. Plus there's a song lyric that know that I know that goes to it. But Wisconsin, you're up next on next Sunday. And tomorrow, like I said, in the beginning of the episode, we're going to do X for tomorrow's horror movie breakdown, because there's actually a really, really interesting little true crime case that's tied to that movie that they built off inspiration from. So yeah. That's all I really got for you guys. I hope you guys had enjoyed your weekend. Let's get through this fucking week so we can party and shop next weekend and just have fucking fun. So, remember, stay frosty, stay foxy. Most importantly, the most important thing on this episode, on this earth, on this earth, most important thing on this, on this planet. I completely forgot my own fucking out, my own fucking outro. Damn it. Stay safe, you beautiful peacocks. I love y'all. Deuces.